Not quite feeling yourself these days. Maybe you're beginning to suspect you may not be who you think you are. Maybe that you might even be someone else. The perfect time to listen to episode 17 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your lies, deceit, mixed messages. This is turning into a real marriage host, Howard Kasner. <laughs> for my listeners, please like, follow, or comment. I'm especially looking for more reviews on iTunes, and I'd love to know what you think. Today, my guest is filmmaker and screenwriter A.J. Bermudis, who has chosen Hong Kong filmmaker John Woo's over-the-top action thriller Face Off, while I have chosen David Lynch's surrealistic neo-noir Hollywood thriller Mulholland Drive both with characters who are not exactly themselves for most of the story. So to begin, Amanda, why don't you tell us something about yourself? First of all, thank you so much for having me, Howard. It's a delight to be here. Here, of course, being our separate homes in Los Angeles. Now, I've been working in the film industry for the last perhaps five years or so. Before that, I lived on the East Coast, worked as a playwright, have worked in literary writing quite extensively. So I'm a huge advocate of very multidisciplinary approach to the craft. I have been in L.A. for exactly the same amount of time that I've been in the screenwriting industry. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, Face Off. First, some information about the film. Face Off was released in 1997. It was directed by John Woo and written by Mike Webb and Michael O'Leary. It stars John Travolta, Nicolas Cage, Joan Allen, Alessandro Nivola, Gina Gershon, Dominique Juan, Nick Cassavetes, Harv Presnell, John Carroll Lynch, CCH Pounder, and Margaret Cho. The basic premise revolves around an FBI agent targeting a terrorist for hire. When the terrorist ends up in a coma, the only hope of dismantling a dirty bomb planted somewhere in Los Angeles is for the agent to have a facial transplant and take the terrorist's place. But the best laid plans of mice and men go awry when the terrorist wakes up and manages to take over the FBI agent's identity. To begin, why did you choose this film? Well, first of all, I love the conceit of the podcast. And when I think of the most delectably bombastic schlock, the most pop movie, I think of Face Off. This is a movie I come back to again again and again. I think it's great fun, great filmmaking in a lot of ways, and also ridiculous in equal measure. It's a movie I've enjoyed since I was very young. I just thought it'd be a really, really fun choice to discuss on the podcast. When did you first see it? I must have been very young. I grew up in a household where there was an odd declension of what could and could not be watched. So, for instance, we didn't watch a lot of movies that had incredibly racy sex scenes or a lot of language, more experimental topics, but action was on the table. I saw it probably when I was a little too young to see it. Single digits, maybe like 10. What did you think of it when you saw it? I was stunned by a lot of the sheer mechanics of the film. Sometimes you see things on screen and you're like, how? How did they do it in terms of sheer physics? And this film does admittedly defy physics in several moments, I think. I was blown away by the fun of it. Our tastes in movies as children are obviously wildly different from the reasons that we see and pursue and enjoy films as adults. I'm sure that as a child, I was deeply attracted to the explosions and the colors and the textures. John Woo really knows his way around some textures. It's definitely just a sinking into the absurdity that I'm sure appealed to me for very different reasons when I was a kid, but which have held up for different reasons as an adult. 
world. When you mention about having different tastes as a child, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but when I was young, I started going to movies at the kids' matinee at the local theater. And every Saturday morning, they would have a movie, they would have a stage show, and then you might be able to stay for the main feature later on. How fun. The movies were always in three categories. They were hammer horror films, Japanese monster films, or sword and sandal epics. And I would go every Saturday. Now today I look back and I watch Hammer Horror films again and I sort of get a kick out of them, but I also say, oh my God, what was I thinking? (laughs) But that was the way I became interested in movies. Well, the layout of the event that you're describing, that kids matinee sounds pretty sophisticated. That sounds like a pretty natural entree into your current cinephilia. So what do you think of the movie now? Do you think it holds up? That's a great question. Of course, Face Off is a reflection of the zeitgeist in which it was created. I I do think I will say that I've been attracted from a very early age to the ways in which films are both powerfully informed by and ultimately come to influence the zeitgeist. While I could not possibly have appreciated that in the early viewings of Face Off, of course, to me, it holds up as an emblem of its time. It's it's still a great film fun movie to watch. Obviously, the studio system of this time, a lot of aspects both on and off screen are problematic, as I would say most movies from 1997 are. But I think that, is this a movie I still enjoy? Does it hold up in entertainment value? 100%. I first saw the movie, and this is some, it's becoming a light motif on these podcasts. When it first came out in the 90s, I was much older than you were. One of the reasons, of course, why I wanted to see it, though I sort of had, in a way, a mixed expectations for it, is that I was a huge John Woo fan. Mm, cool, cool. I loved his Hong Kong films. I loved Hard Boiled, A Better Tomorrow, mm-hmm. The Killer, Bullet in the Head. I thought these were quite amazing films. They were all big over the top ridiculous action films Mm -hmm, and incredibly mm -hmm. violent just Mm -hmm. blood spurting all over the place (laughs) and huge fight scenes but so brilliantly directed absolutely that's been his brand since way back in one of his films it's hard-boiled it ends with a huge big shootout at a hospital but it's not just a shootout at a hospital they've gotten everybody out of the hospital except on the first floor there is a nursery babies i know when you think it's already hit ridiculous ridiculous. he like notches it to 11 (laughs) brilliant i'm going there's no way you should be able to get away with something as ridiculous as this right and he did but i had also been following his movies in the u.s as i remember it he came at the same time as jackie chan did because Mm -hmm. they were both afraid of what was going to happen to hong kong when england gave up authority over it That's so interesting. And what happened to him, to me, is what often happens to foreign film directors who are highly unique and original and are just great filmmakers. Immediately get hampered in. Mm -hmm. And he Mm -hmm. tended to make movies that I kept saying, wow, this is brilliantly directed, but this is not remotely worthy of his talent. And it's not nearly anywhere near as interesting as what he did in Hong Kong. It is interesting. And that's a great question. I I think, obviously, that you've thought about and grappled with. I hope that that's a distinction that at some future date collapses entirely. I'm very curious, do you think that's getting better for filmmakers who are coming into the predominant film industry system of the United States now? I don't. Not everybody would agree with me on every circumstance. I don't think it really has changed. The problem that John Woo had is that 
he had all the power pretty much in Hong yeah. Kong. Yeah. He had to worry about censorship, but no one was censoring violence in Hong Kong. They tended to only censor sex. Yep. But here, the studios had a lot more power, and he had a very hard time, as most foreign filmmakers do when they come here, working in studios because it's just very, very different. One Absolutely. of my favorite stories is when Mickey Alhaneki came to the U.S. after he made Funny Games, games yeah. and it was such a hit that he was invited to come to the U.S. And he went to a meeting with a producer, and the producer opened this bottom drawer and pulled out this screenplay and said, would you be interested in making this film? Mm. And I think it was a Pearl Harbor film. Mm. And mm. Haneke said, is this what Hollywood is like? You just come here and they just throw whatever screenplay they happen to have in their bottom drawer, whether it's remotely right for you or not. So I still think that that is very, very true. When foreign filmmakers come here, they just don't have the ability to do I've enjoyed John Woo's American films. Mm -hmm. His first mm -hmm. film, which was with, I believe, Seagal about veterans being hunted down, the most uh, most dangerous game mm -hmm. update, was very entertaining. And I kept thinking, boy, this is beautiful visually. But it's just not up to what John Woo did in Hong Kong. Yeah, you know, it's a different paradigm. I think you see that over the course of his oeuvre, right? That's the and, reality. And I think you've touched on something important. It would be marvelous to see a collapse of that divide in a way where, obviously, <laughs> exposure has changed dramatically for a lot of reasons in the entertainment industry. But to see that privilege of the American film industry system for a number of reasons sort of gives some leeway to the artistry of great artists. I would love to see some significant <laughs> progress in that area. Insoft was the one that had the least interference from the studios. It was the one where he was pretty much left alone, though I think he still had to worry about the ratings and things like that. Sure. And I do think it is my favorite of his American films. I do like The Mission Impossible, but Face Off, I think, is my favorite. And it is the one that's closest to the kinds of films he made in Hong Kong. I agree. What are some of your favorite scenes in the movie? Wow, where to begin? It's a nonstop thrill, right? First of all, it's difficult to evaluate, but obviously we have to talk about the phenomenal dove-laden standoff scene in the chapel. That's signature. Yes, love... John Woo. <laughs> it's so wild. I share the dove fetish. I think it's super fun. Early in the film, the sequence that involves the plane, I mean, it's like an SUV versus plane battle, and then a yes. near death experience and a giant fan and that scene is absolutely you can't look away but it's also hilarious because it's when you think it can't possibly get more absurd it does john woo i think has this gift for recognizing the limit and then like seeing how much you can nudge that limit it's a really delicious quality from a filmmaking standpoint obviously we have to discuss that outlandish speedboat chase the last film i wrote shot in fewer days than that scene shot it's so crazy that speedboat chase climax i've basically just named the set pieces however uh, the entire movie is in a way a set piece well it's one set piece after another after another after another the one thing i will say about john woo and his action scenes and he's one of the few directors that i react to this way he shoots his action scenes his fight scenes his scenes yeah. of violence as if they're ballet scenes mm -hmm. that's one of the things that gives them their sort of beauty and power 
And I think it's also why his action sequences are so sexy. There's something almost unquantifiably sensual about the dynamics of his action sequences. Mm -hmm. There's not only a logic and order to them. I mean, certainly it accounts for causality, but there's a kind of sexiness that I think John Woo has mastered in the violence space. You're right. There's a sexiness. There's a beauty. There's something interesting about them in and of themselves. You can watch them in the same way you can watch Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers do the dance number Swing Time. Last time Mm -hmm. I saw it, I said, oh, I think I'll just watch that again because it's just so beautiful in and of itself. And you can do the same thing for John Woo's fight scenes. You can say, oh, I just think I'll watch that again because it's just so interesting and of itself. Yeah, I agree. And I think that both those types of exchange are in some sense about power and the conversation of power. I think he has a really, really interesting relationship to those dynamics. My favorite scenes tend to be the ones with John Travolta. Well, this leads to my uh, the things I like about the movie and the things I don't. Though I enjoy the movie as a whole, it has certain issues for me. One that I know not everybody will agree with. I think this is one of John Travolta's better performances. I think John Travolta is brilliant at playing Nicolas Cage. The problem for me is Nicolas Cage isn't remotely good at playing John Travolta. An interesting observation, possibly a keen observation. I've actually wondered about this. I wonder how much of, from a character standpoint, the character of Caster Troy should be tremendous at imitation. And I think it's much, much more difficult for uh, Sean Archer. Although he has all the knowledge, he has all the head knowledge. He's not in his body in the same in the same way that Caster Troy is. We established that very, very early. Caster Troy lives all the way down to his toes. Sean Archer, strictly neck up in terms of operations. One thing that I'm willing to grant the movie is the possibility that, again, from an intentional directorial standpoint, one of these two characters is much better at actually embodying his adversary than the other one is. Well, I do think that in many ways, the bad guys are always more interesting than the good guys. When I did watch it this time, I did wonder, though, whether the Nicolas Cage character and Castor Troy was playing Sean Archer, whether it was as well written. For example, Hmm. when Nicolas Cage as Sean Archer is in the prison. I love that scene, too, by the way. Yeah. He crumples into himself and becomes this ball of pain and a little boy. And I'm going, that's not remotely what Sean Archer was like before this. Sean Archer was the one who would come into the FBI office and scream at everybody because nobody was doing uh, what he thought they should be doing or that they couldn't get ahead. Here, he wasn't sure his character fit Sean Archer. That's interesting. I would say that I think that one thing that is possibly defensible about that dynamic is, I want to get to that in one second, but there is a scene right before that, which is in the prison where Nicolas Cage is involved in a fight in this borderline futuristic prison. It's very theatrical. He's, I mean, he's toggling back and forth between attempting to embody his adversary, but also clearly making almost no effort to check his own emotional response to that. I would argue that I think that in the scene you're describing, which comes right after that, and that's realization that the earth has dropped from beneath your feet. You have essentially lost everyone you loved. The man who killed your son is probably going to go home and bed your wife. I would say, yeah, that's a Sean Archer we haven't seen before, but Sean Archer has also not been in this specific situation before. I think you make an interesting point that Nicolas Cage, well, you say all neck down, and I guess we would call that he's all it. John Archer is all ego. Sean Archer is all thinking, all trying to keep things together, all trying to be in control. One of a nice line is at the very end. I don't know exactly how it goes that when John Tavolta is Custer Troy says, 
here you are in my body and here you are doing this and you're still not having any fun. Right. I know he's not getting it. I love when adversaries are leading from not only different places, but diametrically opposite places. And I think the movie gives you that. One of my least favorite scenes, I'd have to say, is the body transference. <laughs> Mainly because so much time is spent on it. I remember when I saw it mm. and I'm going, why are you spending so much time on this? I'm never going to believe it. It's not <laughs> realistic. You don't really have to go to all this effort to make me buy this. I'll buy it. You could have removed 15 minutes of the movie. Here's what I'll say. I'm with you. And I think that when the movie sinks into its own silliness, it's at its best. When it tries to explain itself, those right. are the moments that perhaps lag. I think that's a perfect way to put it. Because I'm going, this is sci-fi. It's over the top. It's a thriller. <laughs> it's action. I don't really care how they change bodies. Just change the bodies. Right. We get it. They change bodies. It's on the right. poster. But I do love that, that John Woo pulled it back. I think the original version of the script was actually more sci-fi forward. And he really wanted to pull it back from sci-fi as much as he could so he could focus on the humanity of the characters, which I think is a really brilliant move. Of well, course. one of the things he did demand was if he was going to do it, the original script took place in the future. And he said he wanted to do it in the present. A I think that was a good choice. It's an interesting and insightful demand. You've talked about John Woo as a whole. It sounds like you've seen a lot of his movies. What do you think of him as a filmmaker? I think he's a very gifted filmmaker. First of all, I, I have a tremendous respect for cinema from that particular region, but I do think that I have a special love for directors who know their way around violence and storytelling, who are interested in almost in violence as a language. I think John Woo executes that in his work in a way that I really, really love. I think that John Woo Wu embodies a tremendous intentionality in his work. He asks certain questions that no one else is perhaps asking in the room, especially when he moves into American-centered cinema. It's a special kind of talent to understand that sex and violence are not the end, they're the means, they're the language. His relentless focus on storytelling, no matter how ridiculous something gets, certainly he understands how to titillate, how to entertain, how to shock. He gets it. What do you think of some of the more, I guess, spiritual aspects of his films? He is an avowed Christian. I guess he and his family had trouble because they were Christians faced some persecution on that and some poverty. You do see spiritual issues and ideas of good and evil <laughs> and religious uh, leitmotifs throughout his films. I think that strain lends itself to a kind of natural extremis. When your worldview has protagonism and antagonism built in in that way, it can be a strength as a filmmaker, certainly to the inclusion of nuance, to the inclusion of question, and also possibly connected to his obsession with doves. So thanks, Christianity. And he has crosses um, in his films and he has scenes at churches. What I think is perhaps most interesting about that is that it is a piece of John Woo's practice that is very personal, but that is also in the woodwork. He's a filmmaker that translates vision to the screen in a way that's very generous, but also that clearly, clearly reflects his personal experience. I think the best filmmakers have a way of doing that. You said something earlier about that it was very much part of the zeitgeist of its time. I was wondering if you can maybe expand on that a little. What do you see as the zeitgeist of the time and how it reflects that? The movies that are coming out during this period have a kind of bombast 
past, there's a special little pocket of cinema where this kind of outlandish blockbuster action film absolutely thrived. Part of it, too, from a mechanical standpoint, around the turn of the current century is where we start getting color timing and different post-production protocols in filmmaking. Films start to look and feel different, different things start to be possible, but also society feels more precarious. We're going to move into Mulholland Drive shortly, and when we start to talk about that movie, obviously David Lynch is a special case for many reasons, but there is a shift. If you look at the line graph of the 80s through the 90s to the 2000s, you are seeing different kinds of movies emerge, and I think that cinema has a really special relationship to the zeitgeist in terms of what is happening politically, economically, um, and I think that movies from 2001 onward have a sense of precariousness that is virtually fully absent in some of these early to mid to late 90s movies, particularly in the action category. Do you have any favorites in the cast? Sure. Absolutely. I think the weird, weird, weird sibling choices between Nick Cassavetes and Gina Gershon, I, it's so funny and it's so weird. I love imagining John Woo on set just being like, yeah, go for it. Of course, having a very broad and distant sense of his aesthetics and impulses. Joan Allen is a darling. I'll always watch her do anything. I'm trying to talk about someone about Joan Allen. I would she see is. her on stage in Chicago when I lived there. And she and John Malkovich were my favorite actors from the Steppenwolf Theater company. I do feel that she is this marvelous actress. People would write plays for her and she did some wonderful things in movies. I have an issue here that I often have with many films and that is the use of really major talented actresses and giving them really nothing to do. And here she is the they also serve who sit and wait type character. Yeah. Yeah. Which I find just about the least interesting character of all. And I'm going, why are you taking these Oscar nominees and these Oscar winners and these people who are stars of movies and giving them these secondary roles to play. Yes, what you're saying is exactly right. I would watch this movie run by Joan Allen's character. Women are not granted the same caliber of roles as men. It's statistically abysmal. Any narrative with this budget at this time is, with extraordinarily rare exceptions, is allowing gifted female or underrepresented group actors to do their best work. It is a bummer. When you watch this film, Joan Allen, she is crushing it across the board. Every scene she's in, like when she realizes that her husband is not her husband, the scene that leads to sex with the wrong person, even those early scenes where she's like navigating these spousal dynamics, but also trying to drive the plot forward. She's doing everything she can with what she's given. But let's be honest, in a system that is not giving her even the breadth to shine. In summary, it's a drag. This movie is not great for women. There are other problems with the handling of the dynamics with the daughter, the sidelining and objectification, not only from a character standpoint, but from a studio standpoint with other women in this film. I think that those are things that should definitely, definitely be discussed. And certainly this film does not privilege its finest actors over the very, very skewed tendencies of the time. Joan Allen's role in this film, for instance, thank God, they had the presence of mind to make her a doctor. However, right. her connection to the plot is still primarily sexual. She's still primarily sexually tethered to the plot. It's based on her relationship to the man in her life. 
in closing out, I'll, I'll mention some other information about the film. It cost $80 million to make and made $245 million at the box office. It got an Academy Award nomination for sound effects editing. One of the interesting little bits of trivia are the blood types. Sean Archer is blood type O, and that's the universal donor. That means that anybody can use his blood, which symbolizes his giving nature. Whereas Castor Troy has blood type AB, which nobody can take AB. It's the sort of symbolic of his selfish nature. Castor and Pollux, who are the brothers here, were, of course, the two young boys, Zeus put them up in the heavens as a constellation. But the archer, Sagittarius, is dynamically across the circle from Castor and Pollux. Harv Fresnel, who played Sean Archer's boss, dates back to the 1950s. He was in The Unseekable Molly Brown and Painter Wagon. Then in the 70s, his career stalled and he went back to the stage. And then he started making a comeback with movies like Fargo. Matt Ross, who plays Loomis, can be seen as the evil Gavin Belson in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Margaret Cho plays a role that, as I understand it, John Woo originally wanted for Chow Yun-Fat. So they changed the gender when Chow Yun-Fat could not do uh, the movie. Well, with that, let's go to my selection, and that is David Lynch's film, Mulholland Drive. First, some information about the film. A Mulholland Drive was released in 2001, and the writer-director was David Lynch. It stars Naomi Watts, Laura Herring, Justin Theroux, Ann Miller in her very last role, Mark Pellegrino, Robert Forster, Dan Hedaya, Monty Montgomery, Lee Grant, Chet Everett, and Billy Ray Cyrus. The basic premise is about an aspiring and naive actress arriving in Hollywood to find a woman suffering from amnesia in the apartment where the actress is going to stay. The actress decides to help the woman find out who she really is while taking the first steps to breaking into movies. Meanwhile, a director has to deal with the mysterious financier of his movie project, who insists on a particular actress being cast in the lead, though the director doesn't want her. And then it starts getting weird. It gets pretty weird. Yeah. Yes. And so when did you first see the film? So it was out in 2001. I would have been late to the game on Mahalan Drive. I think this is niche enough that I probably wouldn't have seen this until late high school, you know, maybe first year of college. When I saw it, I'd never seen another movie like Mahalan Drive. What about you? You saw it when it came out. I did see it when it came out. I was a big fan of David Lynch. I didn't like mm -hmm. all his films. I find Dune almost unwatchable. Mm -hmm. But I love films like Lonesome Highway and Elephant Man and Who Can Ever Forget, Eraser head so sure. i was looking very much seeing it i had a very strange reaction or history with it when i first saw it i was finding it very interesting but ultimately i found it very disappointing at the time in many ways i thought that he had lost control of the narrative by the time it was over but i could never quite get it out of my head and then i read something that completely changed how i felt about the movie and that is if you think of it as the first part is a dream and the second part is reality, or the last fifth, I think it is, is reality. To me, that changed everything. All of a sudden, I didn't have the same problems I had before. I just found it now incredibly intriguing. And when I saw it again recently for the podcast, it just has really gone up in my estimation. I'm with you on that. I think we may have possibly read the same bit of literature. David Lynch has a very interesting relationship to intentionality as a director. He has strong vision 
vision, but also possibly connected to his Transcendental Meditation Association. He's really very open to letting certain things just live without explanation or letting that ball be in someone else's court. He's very intentional to the inclusion of letting certain elements ride. And I think that understanding that is very, very critical to, to an approach to Mulholland Drive where certain things feel extraordinarily specific, even just from a baseline, and other things feel meaningful but inexplicable. I, I mean, I think that's arguably true of his entire practice. I'm with you. I've, I've had multiple reactions to this movie. It was fun to rewatch in recent days. I think that's very true. I just had a very different reaction and found it far more interesting. He mm. does seem to do two different kinds of movies. He does these very weird out there ones like Eraserhead, uh-huh. mm-hmm. you know, Lonesome Highway, uh, Mulholland Drive, and then Inland Empire. And then he does more straightforward ones like Elephant Man mm-hmm. and The Straight mm-hmm. Story, which is about as straight as you can possibly get. Twin Peaks, which is in many ways somewhere in between. It's very straightforwardly told. There isn't a lot of surrealism, at least in the beginning, but it feels somewhat surrealistic. It definitely qualified as surrealistic for the medium at the time. I have an interesting sort of anecdote I tell when I talk about David Lynch about me and my screenwriting, because I tend to write screenplays that are very influenced by European directors and existentialism. And I will have something happen in a screenplay and I won't explain why it happened because I don't care <laughs> why it happened. It doesn't matter why it happened. Yeah, right. Because you like Red Sart and yeah, it, it, that's the only where thing we are that, now. Yeah, of course. <laughs> the only thing that matters is how you react to it. The world mm-hmm. is essentially absurd. We don't know why it's absurd. So what does that mean? And then what do you do in that regard? Mm-hmm. So I had this screenplay where people switch identities and I never explained why because it didn't really matter. And that wasn't the only thing I didn't explain. And one producer who talked about it said he wasn't sure how he could sell it. And I would say, well, the sex is what you use to sell it because there was a lot of sex in it. And he sort of thought that was too easy. And I said, well, then you sort of sell it like a European film, like Cachet, movies like that. And he said, yeah, but he finds that usually works better if it's in French with English subtitles. <laughs> when I, I entered the screenplay in this contest and actually got to the end, to the top five, and there was an interview process to see about going on, which one was going to be chosen for further development. And we talked about the fact that I don't explain it. And I explained, well, it's very existential and it doesn't matter why it happened. It's just how people react to it. And they said, well, that sounds very French. And I said that, yes, the filmmaker in the U.S. who is closest to what I do is David Lynch. And they said, yeah, and he's financed by the French. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why Mullen Drive came out as a movie, because it wasn't originally a movie, was because he got some French backing. It's hard to imagine the film going forward as planned without that kind of backing for such a European and more nichely French vision. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why the film does not quite come together, though I'm not sure I'm going to complain about that anymore, because I think <laughs> it maybe is fine that it doesn't and that I can't explain it. Even the fact that I think the first part is now a dream and the second part is reality that still doesn't explain a lot of what's going on but it did start out as a television series yeah, that's right. I think he had some pressure following Twin Peaks or pressure slash invitation to kind of develop something else for TV, right? And they didn't like what he did. For, no surprise. So therefore, it never really had an ending to it because it was television series and they weren't doing it. So he did sort of have to cobble it all together to give it some sort of shape. So in many ways, you might say he did an amazing job of cobbling together something 
that wasn't a finished product into something that is quite as interesting and as fascinating as Mulholland Drive is. Have you read his book, Catching the Big Fish? No, I haven't. It's funny, not that it's comprehensively informative about this particular project, but he refers to the blue box in a way that's almost like he doesn't know. He's willing to leave a lot of these transitions and implications up to chance. And on one hand, have a tremendous respect for the ballsiness of that. But I do think there are other moments in the film that are like somewhat unclear in terms of intention. I'm very willing to absorb the burden of intention as an audience member. I'm willing to say, hey, I don't understand this. I'm sure it's brilliant. Whatever, do your thing. But I do feel like there's a lot in this film that is David Lynch relying on that ethos of it means what it means. I think even in one interview, he alluded that he doesn't know where things are going and he doesn't really care. Yeah, yeah. Which It's a very interesting approach as a director. It's a very privileged approach as a director. However, I obviously have tremendous respect for David Lynch and love a lot of his work. I really think that Mulholland Drive is compelling all the way down. Even the scenes that maybe don't make sense are compelling on a different kind of visceral level. And I think that that experimentalism is part of what makes him a much more European-aligned director than a straightforward American-aligned director, strictly in terms of very, very broad strokes, traditional aesthetics, but also, you know, French funding. And it has made it difficult for him to make films. In many ways, he said he's retired, though he's now hinted that he might have another movie. But when Inland Empire came out, in some ways I had the same problem. I loved like two-thirds of it. And then it's like he just completely (laughs) loses control, like he doesn't care. And apparently he doesn't. And finally I got bored at the end, because it just wasn't going anywhere in Mulholland Drive. He tends to circumvent that, even though I'm not sure where it goes, and even though I think he might have lost control of the narrative somewhere along the way. He did somehow manage to cobble it together in a very, very compelling and interesting way. I think that certain projects require a tight rein all the way down. There is no leaving it up to chance. David Lynch, I think from his own ascent, likes to leave a lot up to chance and fortune, actors, discovery. And that's incredibly cool. In a theatrical tradition, that's primarily relegated to the rehearsal process, for instance. In a film tradition, it gets a little weird. And I think it can be great when it gets a little weird because you haven't kept a tight rein all the way down. But that doesn't work for every story. I think that the directorship has to be in service to, in control of, of course, but also in service to the story. And if you think things are just going to sort of manifest in the final moment, that can be very problematic for a film, a story that requires a tighter hand on the wheel. Right. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. What are some of your favorite scenes from the movie? Oh, man. We have so many to talk about. Again, it's like a greatest hits list. I mean, obviously, we're going to have to talk about Club Silencio. That's a no-brainer. I would Uh, love to actually go to the theatrical performance and see the whole thing. It's a very interesting performance artist. Agreed, agreed. This is funny, but one thing that really made me laugh out loud on the rewatch, I think we have to give a quick shout out to the scene where Naomi Watts' character gets off the plane and is thrilled by LAX. She's thrilled Mm -hmm. by the Los Angeles International Airport. To me, that was extremely funny and discordant. The funniest thing I thought there is she's taking a taxi from LAX. You don't take a taxi (laughs) from LAX if you're going to Hollywood. There's a 
lot of just very delicious anachronism and absurdity in this film. I'm on board with all of it. There's an early scene. This is an outlier. You're not going to find this on any top 10 list. The conference room scene very early in the film where basically like life and death decisions Mm -hmm. in the industry are based on the espresso and the mood and sheer nonsense. Very lovely and incisive comment on the mechanics of the industry, which unfortunately persists to this day. I mean, the one thing I think about it is Justin Theroux is playing the director and he (laughs) has no idea what's going on. At the same time, I know exactly what's going on. And I'm sort of saying, wake up and smell the espresso. Uh, I mean, I bought the scene. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the scene, but I'm going, (laughs) they're taking over your film. You've lost your film. Like as someone who's like been in that room, and obviously that's an extraordinarily absurdist portrayal. God bless it. When you walk into a room and you're making a deal in the film industry, everyone in the room is not walking in on the same playing field. It is a very Escher staircase declension of who has primacy and who doesn't. There's actually not a logic. I fully, fully feel that, yeah, Justin Thoreau's character in that scene, to me personally, is not that weird. The weirdness no, he, is not, it's the context itself, weird, yeah. of course. Yeah, the, right. the context itself is, I mean, you know this. Yeah, the, the context right. itself is bananas. It's off the rails, pure absurd. The French would be thrilled. Well, I felt very much for you because I'm going, you're losing your film. I can tell that. And Mm -hmm. I felt very sorry for for him. Of course. Yeah. And and on such unexpected (laughs) predication. One of my favorite scenes has to be one of the most non sequitur scenes, because I don't think we'd ever find out remotely what it has to do with anything. Is the hitman in the office who keeps having to kill people (laughs) because he keeps watching the job. That's a very unclosed loop. I never knew what it had to do with anything but it's one of those scenes where he's killing all these people but you feel sorry for him Mm -hmm. because he keeps having to kill people and you're going all he wanted to do was kill this one person and take this book and all these other people just get in his way it's very funny. I, You know, one thing that this film is very deft at is the perspectival shifts. I agree with you. I think those closed loops intrigue me, and I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I also wonder frequently what is going on. Are you a big fan of noir or film noir or neo-noir? I love film noir. I love neo-noir. The first play I ever wrote and had produced in Chicago, actually, at a gorgeous underground theater, which unfortunately no longer lives in that space. But it was a noir piece. That's a whole story in itself. But I am attracted to the archetypal fidelity and the glamour of noir. David Lynch, while acknowledging the noir aspects, has described this film as a love story. And my experience of noir is that it only works when it's a love story. I think it only works when characters are invested in an unquantifiable, indefensible love way. I'm a huge fan slash collaborator in the realm of noir. I think it's I think it's great. It's certainly one of my favorite genres of all time. And I do love neo-noir as well. I understand what you mean by it being a love story. Not only is it a love story with characters involved, it seems to be a love story for Hollywood as awful as a picture that it portrays of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. This picture of Hollywood is not a really nice picture. It feels like it's a picture about someone who is in love with Hollywood in some odd way. I think that even the title selection, Mulholland Drive, there's something very iconic about
about the way that Los Angeles is represented. I don't know if you've read the book, Land of Smoke and Mirrors. I don't think so. I heard the book. If I've read it at my age, I keep forgetting. In Vincent Brooks' The Land of Smoke and Mirrors, he refers to the real and imagined histories of L.A. He almost paints the entire history and identity of Los Angeles as amnesiac. The way that I've always viewed this film is through that lens of an amnesiac, palimpsestic history of Los Angeles. I mean, you're no stranger to this. The idea that Los Angeles is built on layer after layer after layer of simultaneously foundational and forgotten histories, from the Tainos to the Spanish population to the people who lived here in the early 1900s, the, the decisions that were being made brought Los Angeles to where it is today. We live in an extraordinarily palimpsestic city that is telling and retelling the history of itself. Mulholland Drive is sort of an emblem of that. I mean, William Mulholland, for which the actual Mulholland Drive is named, was an extraordinarily powerful and controversial figure. He shows up playfully in Chinatown, but he also exemplifies this notion of the telling and retelling of stories, the idea that, yeah, fiction and nonfiction, they might be more overlaid than you think, which to me is the crux of the movie, Mulholland Drive. William Mulholland was instrumental in bringing water in in a very specific way that privileged Los Angeles proper and that disadvantaged the surrounding region. When this dam he was involved in collapsed and killed over 450 people, he was about to be brought to court and the case was thrown out. Basically, like two weeks after his hearing verdict, Mulholland Highway was dedicated in his honor. That was the functionality of LA in 1928. If we have a problem, we create a story about it. When we think about the film Mulholland Drive, and again, I cannot speak to David Lynch's intention on this, Mm -hmm. but I do think that it's weirdly preeminently emblematic of that Los Angeles narrative of combining real and imagined histories, the ways that we like to reincarnate ugliness. I think that that is both aesthetically and narratively present in the film in a fairly compelling way. Some more information about the film. It cost $15 million to make, and it made $20.5 million at the box office. So it did underperform. It got an Academy Award nomination for director. At Cannes in 2001, he was awarded Best Director and a tie with Joel Cohen for The Man Who Wasn't There. Again, it was Ann Miller's last film. It is the 28th picture listed on the sight and sound list of the greatest movies ever made. Gehares to Cinema has it as the best film of the 2000s. Herring, who plays one of the two leads, had a car accident on her way to the audition, which she thinks might have helped her actually get the part. Justin Thoreau arrived. He went directly from the airplane to the audition. He was all in black and his hair was all messed up. David Lynch decided to keep that as part of his character's uh, demeanor. Lee Grant, the actress who was blacklisted in the 1950s but then made a return to movies in shampoo, has a small part as the mentally unstable woman who lives at Naomi Watts' apartment. Of course, who can forget Chad Everett, who was the lead actor in the television series Medical Center. David Lynch and Quentin Tarantino do seem to like to find actors that were very much part of pop culture at one time and use them in their projects, often to very good effect. In closing out, I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. 
I've been thinking about Parasite, which is a film I adore. And the films we've been talking about in this episode are about body switching or situation switching, but really reversals of fortune. Parasite is not about two individuals. It's about two families sort of experiencing that reversal of fortune. I can't recommend it highly enough. Certainly one of my favorite films of the year. He's my favorite South Korean director. As I constantly say, South Korea and Romania are making the most interesting movies in the world right now. For me, I will choose Persona, which is Igmar Bergman's 1964 film that stars Harriet Anderson and Liv Ullman. Harriet Anderson plays a stage actress who suddenly in the middle of a performance loses her voice. She can't seem to talk and it seems to be psychological. So Liv Ullman plays a nurse who goes with her to a house in the country near the ocean to stay with her. They tend to look very much alike so what is next for you? What should we be looking for? As you know, Howard, it's a bizarre time for the industry. I'm uh, slated to direct something new, which unfortunately I can't talk about in depth in December. Hopefully, we're, we're hoping that all goes off without a hitch. A lot of moving parts in these days. In a very reliable sphere, you can look forward to the second season of one of my podcasts, which is Two Person Book Club. We're going to relaunch with a very, very, very fun and compelling second season. Two Person Book Club is available on Apple Podcasts. We're going to be reimagining some things for the current zeitgeist. What is the concept? Two Person Book Club is exactly what it sounds like. It's two people getting together and reading a book and discussing it. It has sort of incidentally become inclusive to some fun, high-profile author interviews. Subscribe, catch up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, of course. As for me, I'll go over my usual litany. I'm a screenplay consultant, and I have a Facebook page, Howard's Kastner Script Consultation. I have a blog, Rantings and Ravings, where I talk about the topics concerning screenplays and movies. I publish two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One to Religion. These are short stories that are sci-fi, horror, and fantasy. My the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings, the screenplay reader is also available on Amazon. I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find that on Instagram. The previous podcast was with writer-director Anna Remus for the films LAC Quest and The Seven Samurai, about a group of heroes banding together to save a group of people threatened with destruction for by a more powerful enemy. The next podcast will be with the blogger and film enthusiast Bob Liebenau, where we will discuss The Karate Kid and Let the Right One In, two films about bullies. So with that, I once again want to thank you for being on my show. Howard, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Great. Right.